Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I want to welcome all of you here. We, I think you are in for a treat. When I, I first heard about Matt uh, from several mutual friends, um, all of whom raved about him, and one of whom suggested actually that we bring him in to interview him for a job opening that we had at the time. Um, but I was warned when I was told that, that he was working on a book and that he had lots of reasons to stay in California. But I was pretty... Not pretty sure, but I, I, I had a lot of self-confidence about my powers of persuasion. Um, so Matt came in and we talked, and um, to my great disappointment, I totally failed in my task. And he went back home and he wrote his book, and clearly he made the right decision. Um, and I should say we were also very lucky because we got a wonderful person to take that job. Um, but um, having now read this terrific book that I hope you are all going to leave with a copy of, um, he would have made the wrong decision if he had come here because the book, The Trans-Pacific Experiment, is both an important book and it's a timely book. Um, in it, Matt asks, first of all, he tells a lot of wonderful stories, but he also asks a lot of questions, some of them very soul-searching questions. And in fact, I found myself as I was reading this book, um, pausing on occasion to sort of reflect on my own views of things and the views I thought I had of things. And he makes the reader do that, which is great about a book. But despite the seriousness of the book and the themes he's dealing with, Matt writes in a very down-to-earth, very readable way and presents his ideas and his themes through telling stories, which is always wonderful for a reader. And these are stories about many people that he's come to know over the course of the almost what, six years that he's been working on the book, and some of whom I assume you knew even before you began yeah. to work on the book. Um, and the thing I really loved is in the last chapter, you sort of tell us what happened to all of them, which is very nice for a reader. You know, you go, feel you're getting to know these people, and then all of a sudden you stop and go on to a new person, but you wrap it all very nicely um, in the end. So thank you for that. So the format's going to be that Matt's going to spend the next 20 to 30 minutes um, talking to you about China Fornia, if that's the way you pronounce it. Uh, I, it's a word I assume that you coined. Uh, half coin. Half coin. Half coin. Well, and what I, what it, what one description said it means is the fluid ecosystem of people, money, and ideas bouncing back and forth between the Golden State and the Middle Kingdom. We'll then have a Q&A period, uh, after which Matt will be happy to sign books for all of those who want to buy it. And I, I really encourage you to do so. And I encourage you to buy it not just for yourselves, but to buy a couple copies and send it to friends, uh, especially people who don't know China well, because or, or don't know China well, or even those of us who do but are confused about the U.S.-China relationship and where it is at the moment, 
because Matt gives you in this book, gives everyone who reads it a bit of history, um, and he helps us understand some of the most important areas of both conflict and tension in the relationship. And so I'm going to stop talking and let Matt continue, and he wants to pace back and forth, so I'm gonna go sit down so that I'm not in the way. First off, thanks so much, Jan, and to the committee also. Uh, I was gonna tell the story of how we met the first time, but Sherry yep. took it, so. <laughs> you might uh, have a different perspective, so go ahead. <laughs> for the past, so I think that was 2016. It, it was, was right when I had first moved back from China, when I was really like digging into this kind of full time and putting all my energy into the book and all the ideas and side projects that came off it. And in the, I guess, three years since then, I've continued to work with the committee on different things we've done talks to the students they're bringing out to China who are stopping through California, talks at the University of Hawaii, and all this stuff in it. Every one of those things, you know, I'm presenting something, but in a lot of ways I'm also getting a lot back. Because the stories and the themes that I tell in this book and touch on in this book, there's stuff that I think many of this people in this room are involved in in one way or another, or, you know, there are things that you're expert in in a lot of ways. They're about Chinese students, about Chinese companies and American companies and how they interact, and it's, it's stuff that I've dug into a lot, but I also wanna hear your perspective on. So after the presentation, we're gonna do a little Q&A with me and Jan, and then I'd love to hear from all of you afterwards, because one of the most fun and interesting things about the California-China relationship and the way, the reason I like it so much is it's something that we really are all kind of building together at the grassroots level. And uh, so without further ado, ado I'll jump in. Just a quick overview of what I'm going to be talking about. Um, sort of four sections. First, a, a working definition. What, what do I mean by the Trans-Pacific Experiment? Um, then I think it's important as context for the perspective I'm bringing to this stuff and, and a little window into all the different areas covered. I'm going to go a little bit into how the book came about. And it covers a few different industries, but I'm going to zoom in today just on the technology section of it because it's in many ways the most fraught, the most interesting, and the most hot button issue in the relationship today. And it's gonna really weigh on all our lives as we go forward and the relationship between these two countries. So I'm gonna dig into that and try to get a working definition of what I call Silicon Valley's China paradox. And after working through all that and kind of bringing us into the present moment, just gonna take a step back and see, you know, what lessons have we learned from what we've gone over and more looking forward where is this relationship maybe going, and maybe that's something we can get into more in the Q&A and everything. Um, so first up, what is the Trans-Pacific Experiment? The simplest, most concise definition that I can think of is, it's the largest experiment ever run in grassroots superpower diplomacy. So what differentiates this relationship, the California-China relationship, and what's really new about the last five or even 10 years is that it brought what is a superpower relationship between the US and China, which was always a very high level and sometimes very distant relationship. It's Nixon and Mao. It's Kissinger and Zhou Enlai. It's a lot of stuff that the National Committee has actually been involved in over many decades. And as we got into the 90s and the 2000s, it became as much a business relationship, but it was still something that oftentimes happened at a distance. It's um, our you know, Fortune 500 companies, sending money over there, getting goods in return. They buy U.S. treasuries. It's, it's a relationship that happens at a distance and it tends to happen at a very high level. Whereas what happened in the last decade is that it really came down to a grassroots relationship. It stopped being predominantly or exclusively, I should say, about presidents meeting presidents. 
and I think the heart of the relationship where a lot of the real frictions and also the possibilities was happening at the grassroots level. Chinese students at US universities, Chinese startups in Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley companies over there, Hollywood and China, Chinese immigrants. And so that's what we're gonna be going over. Sort of getting a little bit more specific, this is the definition that Jan cited a little bit. I think of the Trans-Pacific Experiment as the fluid ecosystem of students, of technologists, entrepreneurs, home buyers, you could go on, filmmakers, technologists, immigrants and ideas that are bouncing back and forth across the Pacific Ocean. And California, I would argue, is the living laboratory for that. It's something that's going down all over the country, but if you have to say what is the top destination for Chinese students, for Chinese immigrants, for Chinese technologists, filmmakers, or the top destination for investment, that all is in California. So I think of California as kind of the epicenter of this new phase of the U.S.-China relationship. And in that, in bringing it down from that high level to a more grassroots level, we get a lot of new possibilities, but we also get a lot of new tensions. I think there may be a, a more idealistic version of this, or a version that a lot of people held about five years ago, was that you know when US and China, when the people from these two countries meet each other face to face, we're finally going to you know bridge all these gaps and come to a common understanding, and it's gonna be great. But over the course of researching and writing this book, uh, I found that it's, that's very much a double-edged sword. When you bring people face to face, when you bring Chinese money into neighborhoods, or you bring US companies into China, any way that you swing it, that proximity often kind of, it, it leads to more tensions and more frictions around the edges, and that's what really animates a lot of the book, a lot of the chapters of the book. So, a quick reminder, books come from normal people. I'm a normal person. Um, the stories they tell and the ideas they teach are very much, they're hugely influenced by the author themselves. We like to sometimes pretend like there's some objective analysis that was just, you know, came down from the heavens. But they very much emerge out of your own relationship to the stories, to the people. And so in light of that, I'm going to give you a, a quick overview of my Trans-Pacific journey, my Trans-Pacific story and use that as a sort of a cutting in point to talk about the different aspects of the Trans-Pacific Experiment. So uh, I was raised in Palo Alto in the Bay Area for middle school, high school, uh, for college. I just stuck around, uh, went to Stanford. And up until probably 2008, about halfway through college, if you asked me for everything, the whole summation of what I knew about China, I could have given you basically Mao Zedong, Tiananmen Square, factory of the world. Like three buzzwords, no context, no real history, anything like that. But uh, in the summer of 2008, I was very lucky in that I got a summer job as sort of a, a glorified camp counselor at an education camp in Beijing, <coughs> along with my freshman year roommate, who's here actually now. We went over there together in the summer of 2008, and uh, you know, from the moment that I hit the ground over there, I was just utterly fascinated. You know, I thought I was well-traveled because I'd been to Europe and South America and stuff like that, but nothing prepared me for just how different, how interesting, and how alive and thought-provoking China was going to be. So spent about six weeks in Beijing in the run-up to the Olympics, traveled a little bit to Xi'an and to Shanghai, and I knew at that point that uh, I was going to want to come back after I graduated. Just a quick throwback, very much dating myself uh, with, the, with the photographs. Um, these are both from that summer of 2008, a beautiful uh, blue sky day at the Great Wall. And the other thing that really struck me there was um, just the, the, the relationships 
that I was able to form at a very basic level with some of the people there. So those two guys there were the security guards, the Bao'an, at our uh, dormitory building in Beijing. And no, no common language. I couldn't speak any Chinese. They couldn't speak any English. But we basically became friends by, uh, I taught them how to throw the frisbee. They taught me how to kick a jianzi, like a Chinese hacky sack. And you know, just bond over that. At the end uh, of the time, the guy on the left, he gave me that shirt, which I still have today and still wear sometimes, a Beijing Bao'an uniform. Um, but yeah, I was, just, I, I was just totally fascinated. I thought that China put a new spin on almost any issue or question that I'd been studying or thinking about. Somehow the density of China, the history, the, the pace of change, it all put a new spin on it. So after graduating college in 2010, uh, I moved back. I moved to Xi'an, uh, worked as an English teacher in Xi'an for a year, and then went to Beijing to study Chinese. And I felt like, in many ways, language was kind of the key for me to unlocking the country. It was how you could actually engage with normal people. So I spent a while just diving into the language. Um, on the left here, this is me doing grassroots uh, superpower diplomacy, dressed as Xi Yangyang, a Chinese cartoon sheep. Um, every, in, in Beijing, every Halloween, a lot of the foreigners would all dress up and try to sort of take over the Beijing subway and have like a drinking party on the subway. Led to a lot of conflict and I was trying to mediate between the two sides here. Um, and uh, I just made some really sort of amazing friends. The guy getting thrown up in the air is my friend Kai, Kai Ge, uh, who he and I founded uh, the first Ultimate Frisbee team in Xi'an together. And I put that up just because it was people like Kai and people like my roommate Zhang Wen who in many ways kind of turned me onto my next path over there, which was to become a journalist. I felt like the US media was doing a really, really good job of covering very sort of high level uh, important stories like corruption at the national level, dissent, protests, stuff like that. But I felt that most Americans, average Americans kind of lacked an understanding of the texture of life for just normal Chinese people. So I would meet people like Kai and just hear his family story over the last decades, cultural revolution, you know, reform and opening, and his own kind of, his the own tensions that he was living and playing out. I just wanted to be able to share those stories with Americans, um, because I, I just think it animates the country and, and puts things in kind of a different light. So I saved up a little bit of money, about 30,000 kwai, which is like 5,000 bucks back then. I said, yeah, I'm gonna spend all this money trying to become a, a journalist, travel around the country, and if I don't, if I don't you know, get a job by the end, then I'll just give up and uh, go work at a bank or something. Um, I was gonna go sell real estate in Wuhan. It was gonna be very random. Um, so at the end of that, I had written a few stories and gotten a few things published, but I hadn't gotten a real uh, journalism offer. And so sort of resigned. I was going to go home for a few weeks and come back and look for a normal job when you know, I was kind of dejected a little bit. But then a, a miracle happened. I, um, I broke my ankle very, very badly. Uh, and I was, playing, I was playing Frisbee in Beijing. Um, and yeah, just some guy breaks my ankle. I go to the doctor in Beijing, and he, he does the x-ray. And he looks at the x-ray for like 0.5 seconds. And it's no problem. He says, oh, it's just, you know, just walk it off. It'll be a couple weeks. I was like, okay, so I, I had a trip back to Palo Alto planned. I flew home, and the doctor in Palo Alto looked at the same x-ray. He was like, yo, Shar, like this is a big, you, you broke your ankle in multiple places. You can't get back on a plane to fly. You know, every time you fly, you're risking your life because of blood clots that could kill you. And so you can't go back to China for at least two months. And so I was like, no, you know, I'd spent so long 
trying to pick up all these different storylines and threads over there, trying to you know really get in on the language. And when I felt I was kind of at the peak of my powers in some way, suddenly I was stranded back in Palo Alto. And I thought I was going to lose track of everything that was happening in China. And this is the, yeah, this is fall of 2013. Um, but then I, I, I just found that a lot of the China threads that I've been tracing over there were suddenly showing up in California. So the first one that I encountered was um, Chinese home, luxury home buying tours. Palo Alto is like a super desirable place for Chinese immigrants uh, to buy homes and send their kids and stuff like that. And so they would kind of all come to Palo Alto and get on these big like uh, luxury, what were they, Lexus buses, go around town and just kind of like pick out houses to buy. So I sort of talked my way onto one of those tours and, and wrote a story about that. And uh, after sort of two month delay, I ended up back in Beijing and, and that delay actually led to a really good opportunity. It led to kind of my dream job. I, I got a job as the China correspondent for the World Post, which is a combination of the Huffington Post and uh, the Berggruen Institute, a think tank. And they said, you know, you're empowered, you just go around China, write whatever you want, not whatever you want. They said, you know, <laughs> you have a long leash, go, do, go, go find some interesting stories. And so I was really excited, but then Another sort of pseudo-tragedy in my mind at the time happened. I, I couldn't get a visa to go back. The Chinese government doesn't love giving out journalist visas, and specifically at this time, the New York Times had just a year earlier published this big investigation into the wealth of Wen Jiabao, the second most powerful guy over there. Western media and Chinese government were beefing, and so I was stranded back home, and I had no idea if I'd ever be able to get a visa. But this time, I at least knew what to look for. So I started picking up more of these China-California threads, meeting some of the Chinese technologists who were showing up in Silicon Valley, meeting some of the Chinese investors who were opening up factories in Southern California. And I, I just found that so many of the kind of key tensions and new developments that were happening in China were kind of bubbling over in some way and showing up on US shores. And it was showing up at the grassroots level in a way that it hadn't before. And so I ran around doing this for a while. After about seven months, I finally got the visa and went back to China. And I had about two years, um, oh, I forgot the order of this presentation. <laughs> I'll give just a quick preview of some of those threads I was picking up. So the, the important ones that I focused on. Um, Chinese students at California universities. California is the top destination for Chinese students, and this is at a time when number of Chinese students is growing by like 30, 40% every year. So on the left here, this is a guy that I interviewed. Um, I was a judge at a Chinese language speech contest. This guy's name is Ham, and uh, he was speaking about mental health. And, you know, meeting people like him, I felt a lot of that kind of promise of fresh-faced young Chinese guy shows up in Berkeley, California, kind of getting his mind opened up in different kind of ways. And I was super excited about it. But there's always, like I said, a bit of a double-edged sword. On the right side here, this is a protest at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, when they invited the Dalai Lama to be a commencement speaker. And Chinese students, there's, uh, you know, China, the Chinese government doesn't like the Dalai Lama. So when he was coming to UCSD, there was a uh, protest by students and led to this whole conflict over, you know, is the Chinese government trying to control what is said on U.S. campuses? So students was a big one. This is, in many ways, the most fun to investigate because you just get to hang out with uh, young people. Um, started meeting the technologists that were bringing these two ecosystems together. On the left here, that's Jerry Yang, the founder of Yahoo, and Jack Ma, and kind of a famous picture where they met in the 90s. On the right, this is a story I'm going to be telling you as we go on. That's Li Jirfei, one of these one of a, a number of Chinese people who kind of end up cross-pollinating these ecosystems. Maybe they're born in China, 
educated in the U.S., work at Google, go back to China, get investment from here, and just start sewing these two ecosystems together. Um, Chinese blockbusters, the China-Hollywood relationship is fascinating, so I headed out to the, the Hollywood of China in rural Zhejiang to watch some movies being filmed. The real estate uh, that impacts both suburban real estate prices, but also leads to some major developments, especially in San Francisco and Oakland and LA. Um, really transformative. The biggest housing developments that have been done there in decades are almost all of them funded in some way by Chinese money. Um, Chinese green investment and climate cooperation, and even the immigrant populations, the Chinese American public servants who ended up kind of breaking down barriers and, and coming into US political leadership for the first time, first in the 70s and 80s, but really come into, a, in some ways, a peak in the 2000s. So all of these trends led to high hopes. I saw these, I was super excited. I, I love it. I love just taking Chinese people and American people and just smashing them together and just, you know, get them drunk and just, you know, see what happens. Just have fun, like learn about each other. Um, but at the same time, all of these trends were kind of planting the seeds of new dilemmas, new tensions. And that's what I started to realize as I dug more and more into the research for the book. So, you know, Silicon Valley's relationship with the Communist Party has always been fraught, and I'd say now is more fraught than ever. Are they going to censor their platforms to gain entry to China? Are they going to put, give uh, cell technology that will feed into China's surveillance state? Um, Hollywood studios suddenly started changing their storylines to kind of conveniently run through China so they could get access to that market, and also censoring them when it came to quote-unquote sensitive issues. Um, backlash against Chinese investment, this is from a story in Southern California in the book, and also the, the Chinese-American political sort of coalitions all started to fracture, and you saw this really came to a height during the 2016 election when Chinese-Americans for Trump became a major sort of force in U.S. politics. Um, so I, this all took me back to China. I was super excited about all this stuff, and I had a couple years to run around China and do a bunch of stories. I would trace these same things back there. I'd go interview the rappers in Chengdu who were kind of inspired by Kendrick Lamar or the Chinese startups in Beijing founded by ex-Googlers. But after running around for a couple of years, I realized that California was the sweet spot in the way that there, there wasn't enough attention being paid to it. We had a ton of China expertise in Beijing, where you have the whole foreign correspondent community, some think tanks, and you have a ton of Chinese, China expertise on the East Coast, so in New York, places like this, and in Washington, D.C. But I felt there wasn't enough um, attention being paid to where I saw the rubber kind of meeting the road in California with all these storylines. So uh, I decided to move back and just get involved with this book and kind of become a general hanger-on in, in anything China-California. So I brought California mayors to China for investment promotion. I uh, consulted with VCs and stuff like that. Anything to just kind of get in the mix and see what this looked like at the grassroots level. Um, eventually that led to my current job as a fellow at Macro Polo. It's a think tank at the Paulson Institute. And that kind of gave me a little bit of the perspective of stepping back and seeing it from a more analytical lens. It's not always down in the trenches. You can't see everything from just talking to people face to face. You got to step up and see the rela relationship writ large. And all that went into this book. A lot of context. Um, but these are the six sectors that I end up covering in the book. So education, Chinese students, technology, Silicon Valley in China, Hollywood in China, green investment in climate, real estate, activism. But the one we're going to zoom in on today is technology. Like I said, one of the most fraught, in many ways one of the most 
for how important it is, it is one of the least understood areas. There is, it's just in the last two, three years, it's suddenly on a national level. The US government and the Chinese government to some extent have started pouring a ton of energy and focus into the Silicon Valley-China relationship. But there's been very little attention paid to what does it look like sort of on the ground? How do these linkages actually form? And what are the motives of people? So that's what I'm gonna to try to get into in the remainder of this time for a Q&A. Um, I'm gonna lay out what I call Silicon Valley's China paradox, which I think is kind of the paradigm that defined the last 10 years, and show how that's transitioned into what we now call decoupling and sort of a more outright competition between the US and China in technology. First up, um, who are these people? And why do they represent Silicon Valley's China paradox? What are they doing? They're giving each other um, earlobe massages. This is, the, uh, this is an icebreaker at a uh, hackathon for an AI startup in Beijing. And the guy in the front is named Li Zhifei. And he's sort of the main character that I follow in the book. I follow through uh, the technology chapters as a window into this relationship. Because I think he and his company really embody Silicon Valley's China paradox, and they they show just how entwined these two places are and how that leads to this combination of new possibilities and new tensions. So we'll go over quickly Jirfei's journey. He was born in central China in uh, Hubei, I believe. Yeah, Hubei. Um, he went to college in Beijing, got his undergraduate degree there. He was born in I, 1978, so like just right at the dawn of reform and opening when you know, Steve Jobs and folks are out in Silicon Valley starting to put together some early personal computers. The Chinese government is like debating, can you sell rice for profit? Like, is that even okay? So the gap between these two ecosystems at the time is just totally vast. Even when he gets to Beijing in the 90s, late 90s, during China's first internet boom, the gap is still, China is kind of interesting as a sort of an exotic technology space but it's not where you'd say the real action is happening. So after he got his undergrad degree and worked in a Beijing startup for a couple of years, he decided to pick up stakes and go to Johns Hopkins University for a PhD in computer science. This, is, this was 2004. And at the time, again, you had the earliest seeds. You had Alibaba. I think Baidu was about to be founded or had just been founded the year before, right around then. And there were, People still, both in the US and in China, thought of the Chinese internet, the Chinese technology space as fundamentally a backwater, a place that was, was kind of interesting and sometimes cute. You know, you had Jack Ma, this little alien-looking guy who's very eloquent, but no one took them very seriously. We all thought that American companies were gonna get in there, they were gonna steamroll the Chinese competitors, and that was gonna be that. So he goes to Johns Hopkins to kind of get more cutting-edge skills in what's happening on the frontiers of computer science. He worked on, he was kind of into AI before it was cool. Um, he worked on machine translation there, and when he graduated, he got a job at Google. And this is in 2010. This is just as Google itself is pulling out of mainland China, retreating to Hong Kong in the US. Zhifei is going into Google. And he worked there for a couple of years, uh, basically on the algorithms used for their machine translation services. and. He was you know, something of a, a rising star within it. I think he had one of the sort of best papers at Google for one of those years. But when he decided that he wanted to found his own startup, he decided to go back to Beijing and do that. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But I think at its core, this is 2012, and at the time, you have a lot of 
Chinese engineers that have come to Silicon Valley, but at this time, very few of them have returned to China. Most of them are still sort of toiling away here at big name companies and they get a good salary and stuff like that. But when I asked them, why did you return to China? They'd always say, you know, the US, you can live a comfortable life, you can make, you know, six figures and send your kids to an American school and it's great. But if you're a Chinese person, you really want to break out, you want to be a founder, you want to be a big shot in some way, it's much easier for them to do that back in China. When he's in Silicon Valley, he's looked at as just, you know, another Chinese engineer at Google. Whereas when he returned to Beijing, he's part of this very elite cohort of ex-Googlers who have returned to Beijing. He got funding for a startup before he had ever, he basically just had a sketch of an idea when he got funding from leading Chinese um, VC firms. And when he got back there, he was able to recruit uh, some of the top talent that was within China. He said for a while they would try to recruit and they would just say, you know, uh, AI uh, startup and, you know, we're looking for engineers and they wouldn't get any replies. And suddenly they changed the, the font in their ads to ex-Googler founds AI startup. And suddenly the resume started pouring in. Everyone wanted to work for uh, something that had that tinge of Silicon Valley, you know, magic in it. And so what was the company actually doing? It's called Mobvoi or Chuman Wenwen. Chuman Wenwen means like to go out, ask, go out the door and ask around. And the goal was to make it a Chinese Siri for Android. So functionally like a voice assistant that you could ask questions of and it'd give you answers back. You know, where is the good Sichuan food? Uh, those normal kind of questions that you would ask Siri or you'd ask Android, but in this case, there's a big market opening because Android at this point and its voice assistant and Android Wear, the platform for wearables, are all functionally blocked within China. So he leaves his former employer to go back to China where there's a sort of semi-protected market created by the fact of the Great Firewall that opens up a possibility for him and his company to fill that void. So you can look at it this way, smart wearables. Smart wearables basically means smart watches, now uh, it's moved much more into smart speakers and stuff like that. But this is 2012, 2014, when this was all very, very early. The, I think the Apple Watch comes out in 2015. So you have this big market, big potential market, and we often think that the firewall kind of separates these two ecosystems. There's, they, they should, they're not interacting with each other. But in fact, in Mobvoi, you had sort of the cream of the crop from both ecosystems there. You know, uh, Jerfay, he comes from Johns Hopkins, he gets trained at Google. His co-founder and CTO used to work at Microsoft and Google. Um, he's got ex-Stanford, ex-Harvard Business School, but he also has a lot of uh, ex-Baidu people, graduates of Tsinghua, uh, Sequoia Capital. So in many ways, his company and the space they occupy is this very rich, sort of cross-pollinated ecosystem. The only thing that's on the outside is Android Wear and Google itself. And that sort of sets up this tension that we'll be going into. Um, so I got to know Jerfei first in 2014 when I was back waiting for my visa. And when I went back to Beijing, um, I went to his company and, and met him in person. And he and his co-founder invited me to go to a smartwatch hackathon. Um, this was held actually the exact day that the Apple Watch went on sale. And the goal of Mobvoi in this was to kind of create their own alternate ecosystem of apps that would be able to operate in China and would fulfill some of the same functionalities, but would also kind of branch off into distinctly Chinese needs. 
So we went to this um, beautiful resort outside of Beijing, and we stayed in this nice hotel. And these, this group here, I remember, they were building a an app that would allow you to um, have your smartwatch tell you when the Beijing pollution index went above 250, which is kind of like the the cutoff line for like this is really really bad. Maybe you shouldn't go outside. So. In many ways, they're, they're bringing these two, they're bringing resources from both sides together, but they're building apps that are very grounded in what Chinese users and consumers will want. So they stayed up all through the night creating a bunch of these apps. Um, the next day, we sort of celebrated with a barbecue, like chicken hearts and yang rou chuar and all this good stuff. And I've, what I found fascinating about this group is the way that it combined that kind of cross-pollination with separation, like in these groups, if anyone who's spent a lot of time with um, Chinese folks or especially Chinese technology people, you'll see their, their sentences, they'll speak like a, a sentence in Chinese and then just drop in English words when it's convenient. So they say, backend. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know how we're supposed to do this backend part of the whatever the app. They'd say, I don't know, like, why not? You know, it's like just kind of throwing, you know, it throws your mind for a loop and gets you very, you hear this when you're at startups in Beijing, but you also hear it in Silicon Valley. When I go, my, my fiance works at Google, and when I would go to visit her and go to the, the cafeteria, it's like the second language there is Mandarin. And it's always kind of a trippy experience for me to go in and just be like, wait, close my eyes. Like, where am I again? Am I in Beijing? Am I in Silicon Valley? Um, and anyway, it got me thinking about how does, how does Google feel about this, or how does the U.S. government even feel about this? You've got someone who drew on an education from the U.S., work experience in the U.S., and on some U.S. resources, but goes back to found a company that is uh, fundamentally filling a hole that's made by U.S. companies being blocked. And I thought, you know, is Google going to be, a, you know, kind of rubbed the wrong way? But the answer was not at all. Google, shortly after I went on that hackathon mission with them, Google... Mavoy came out with its own tick watch, an alternative to Apple Watch. Google invested in them a few months later. I think it was about a $40 million investment. It was the first investment Google had made in a Chinese startup since they'd exited in 2010, and this is 2015 at this point. And beyond that, Google even fundamentally partnered with Mavoy to make Google's own smartwatch ecosystem available within China. So they said, they, they knew Jerfei and they knew the startup and they knew that it's sort of the engineering quality, the product quality was up to their standards, but just because it didn't have Google name brand on it, it was able to operate within China. So they basically worked with Mobvoi to make it a sort of proxy store mm -hmm. for Google's own apps and services for smartwatch, Android apps and services for smartwatch. So this kind of bringing all those threads together is what I call Silicon Valley's China paradox. It's the idea that during this period of time, 2010 to 2017 more or less, the flow of people, of money, and of ideas between the two ecosystems is reaching an all-time high. And it's going in both directions. It's not just China studying the US and trying to copy it. But you have companies like Facebook studying apps like WeChat. You have uh, companies like Google trying to sort of poach Chinese talent to come over and work in Silicon Valley. But at the same time that these flows are reaching an all-time high, the divide along the company lines and along the internet itself, what you can actually access in the two ecosystems, is starker than ever. So just to visualize it, people, money, and ideas. People like Jerfei, money like Google investing in Mobvoi or you know, Tencent investing in Tesla, and ideas. Um, you have 
Google and Microsoft setting up research labs in Beijing. You also have Baidu and Alibaba setting up research labs in the U.S. All these flows for the first time have become, have reached an all-time high and they become bi-directional. They're going in both directions. But when it comes to the companies themselves, there's a brick wall or a firewall, whatever you want to call it, between the two of them. Well, the U.S. companies are almost all blocked over there. Uber is probably the only one out of there that you could say was sort of uh, beaten out of the Chinese market. Um, and that's why they're not over there. The Chinese companies here, they're not blocked, but they fundamentally can't gain any traction. And so we have the internet kind of going along these two different forks at the same time that the flows between these are getting to an all-time high. And the question is, you know, it builds up a certain level of tension. You, it, it, it's imbalanced in a way. And the question is, how would that paradox resolve over time? Was it going to be, finally, the markets are going to open up and there's going to be sort of a full integration between the two? This is what Mark Zuckerberg, Google leadership, what a lot of people were banking on. You know, Mark Zuckerberg was waging a very high-profile sort of charm offensive in Beijing, trying to just kind of talk his way into the Chinese market, basically. And that's what a lot of people were banking on. The other option was shutting off these flows. So not making it full integration, but making it full decoupling. And if you've been following the news at all for the last you know, year or so, this is definitely the current trend. It's been an attempt to fundamentally to pull apart those connections of people, of money, and of ideas between the ecosystems, and basically make it a, a, a walled off, um, a fully walled off technology space. Decoupling in practice. This is in, in, it's kind of an industry term. I don't know how much it's sunk into the broader world. Decoupling, that's what we call this process of pulling the two ecosystems apart. What does it look like? Um, it looks like China sort of ratcheting up its cybersecurity laws, forcing U.S. companies to localize their data over there. Um, it comes with U.S. lawmakers trying to ban U.S. chip sales to companies like Huawei or ZTE. You've got uh, all of the Chinese venture capital that had kind of flooded into Silicon Valley 2012 to 2016-ish. Um, suddenly, we pass uh, national-level regulations that make it uh, very difficult for Chinese companies to invest in Silicon Valley. We've got the FBI chief warning that you know, Chinese students are spies or the Chinese government is attempting to kind of infiltrate our universities. And we have Huawei, a major Chinese company, realizing that they fundamentally they have to create their own ecosystem. They can't just work with Android anymore because that could be taken away from them at any point. So there are so many threads and so many open questions in this decoupling thing that maybe we can get into during the Q&A. Um, I just want to give a couple of more high-level takeaways when we think about the costs and benefits of this and, and the motivation for it. So why decoupling now? I see it as fundamentally an attempt of the national government to kind of reassert control over what was a very private sector, a very local government set of connections. It's sort of the period 2010 to 2016, 17, that forms the heart of the book was this very, it was very laissez-faire in the sense that the US foreign policy or the US education policy, technology policy, um, you know, sort of cultural film policy was in many ways left up to the companies themselves or to the people. You know, the president of the University of California is kind of the most important figure in US-China education relationship. People like Mark Zuckerberg or the Google leadership, they become uh, de facto d diplomats of a kind. And people like Drefe may become sort of like lower level diplomats of a kind. But 
uh, after the 2016 election, but it had been building for some time. There's this attempt by Washington, D.C. kind of waking up to this fact and waking up to the fact that China has been outperforming expectations in the technology space. So there's a desire to, to reassert control, to regain control over this. I'm going to go relatively quickly through these last sections because there's so much to get into and the news on this changes every day. I just want to give a couple potential takeaways on decoupling. First, the benefits of decoupling. This is what you hear about most of the time. There's a strategic benefit in trying to prevent uh, Chinese acquisition of U.S. technology. There's a, 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 a certain line of argument in D.C. that sees this as fundamentally a predatory relationship. Fundamentally, China has been leeching off U.S. technology. And if we put up these walls, we can stop that. And there's also an ethical component cut ties with the Chinese surveillance state. I think you know the biggest story in many ways the last couple of years has been the dramatic expansion in the Chinese sort of AI-powered surveillance state and how reliant that is on a few specifically U.S. chip makers, uh, companies like NVIDIA, where we think that maybe if we pulled these away, China would at least have a much harder time surveilling and locking up its own people in places like Xinjiang. Um, I think we hear a lot about these, so I'm not going to go into super depth with them. I want to talk just quickly about the cost of decoupling as I see them, because I think this is the side of the equation that isn't, isn't really in the conversation right now. Again, a strategic component to it. The global talent that fuels U.S. tech. Through my own research and uh, specifically now I look at the artificial intelligence relationship. See, there's a huge dependence on the U.S. for immigrant talent, and China is almost always the largest source of that talent. And an ethical, or this, this is both ethical and strategic, I would say, is an urgent need for tech governance. As technologies like artificial intelligence, blockchain, quantum computing, whatever you want to, whatever industry you're interested in, these are emerging technologies that are going to have a huge impact all across the globe. And the idea that we would just fundamentally stop having conversations about them, that we would fundamentally think that the only way to engage with China on this is to is in a outright sort of zero-sum rivalry, that it, I believe sets up very, very dangerous dynamics going forward. So I'll just touch on, these are the key focus of my research at the moment and going forward. Um, at the beginning, as mentioned, I work for Macropolo, this think tank. Recently, I've been looking at what percentage of AI research talent comes from the US, comes from China. And the basic story is while a lot of AI researchers uh, come from China, they almost all end up in the U.S. We have a net brain gain from this, while China has a brain drain from these connections. It's even more stark at the top, top levels and at the top 20% levels. To, to get into all this now would be a lot, but um, all this research is freely available online, Macro Polo. Um, and this is just a piece I published last week in Bloomberg Opinion, touching on what I was describing about this issue of AI governance. And I think that this is going to be, we're just, we're just, just, just scratching the surface of the way that this technology is going to impact so many different sectors. And maybe there are good reasons to reassess the relationship, to cut it off in certain areas, and to amend it in a lot of ways. But to have it be a totally clean cut, a radical decoupling, I think is quite dangerous. Um, and yeah, right now we're in this moment of kind of Washington being dominant in the relationship while California and the local actors have very much shrunk back. And I think what we see between these two eras is we need a, we need a balance between the two. For a long time, DC, you know, basically California and its companies and people were running this relationship in a way. And DC had no, there were no national level 
uh, imperatives that would be communicated in that. And right now, and that's maybe pulled things too far in that direction, right now we're in the phase of yanking the relationship all back to be centralized among decision makers in DC. I think there's a real lack of an understanding of what it looks like from the ground up and what the implications of that are. So my hope with this book and with a lot of my work is to kind of bring some of that balance back. There's a lot of content. I'm gonna just try to wrap it up quickly with, with a sort of step back high level thought that's been sticking with me um, throughout this. So, you know, I mentioned that I talked to Jan 2016 just as I was getting into writing this and all the way back to 2013 when I broke my ankle. One phrase that sort of stuck with me over this whole period of time is this Chinese uh, proverb called Sai Wang Shima, Yan Zhi Fei Fu. Like a lot of uh, Chinese proverbs, it's like you know eight characters, very simple, but it, it conveys like a whole story behind it. And so this, if literally translated, means the old frontiersman lost his horse, how to know it's not a blessing. But if you uh, grew up uh, speaking Chinese or whatever, then the, you'd know the story behind this. Uh, it's very long and a little bit convoluted, but basically it's the story of an old man on the Chinese frontier who a series of things that look like great, uh, great things happen to him and tragedies happen to him. Throughout the whole process, the whole village comes to him. Every time a great thing happens, you know, he gets a whole flock of new horses to show up on his ranch. And they say, wow, you know, old man, this is so great. Like, you're, you're rich now, fundamentally. He says, how do I know this is not a tragedy? And all the horses run away, and everyone says, oh my god, old man, you know, this is such a tragedy. He says, how do I know this is not a blessing? And it goes through a series of things in which his son breaks his leg, but that leg break ends up saving his life, and all this stuff. Um, but it's a phrase that stuck with me as I was going through this kind of on a personal level, and, and now as I zoom out on a, a sort of national level as well. When I broke my ankle the first time, I was like, no, you know, I'm going to lose China. I'm going to lose track of this. That ended up leading into my job for the Huffington Post. That job, then no, they're gonna take it away, I can't get my visa. But that time back in California led me to kind of pick up on all these threads. And applying that sort of same mentality to the national, national level relationship, I think we've gone through a very rocky up and down period over the last few years. And this is not to say that you know every everything that looks dark turns out well or something like that. I think that's kind of like, Sometimes this is translated as like every cloud has a silver lining. That's a very um, kind of narrowly uh, positive spin on it. It's really more about like the perspective you take to it, stepping back and just recognizing how little we know about which direction these things are going. Maybe you know the number of Chinese students who showed up, maybe that led to the current tensions in some way, but maybe those same students are gonna be the foundation of a future relationship between these countries. We really don't know. And when I talk to people, technologists in China and Silicon Valley, a lot of them come back to me with the same idea that, yeah, we're in a moment of great tension and transition, but the future is wide open in this. And it's kind of, it's, it's being constantly built by the people that are involved in this relationship. And that's what I hope that we'll all be a part <coughs> of going forward. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm glad you ended with that parable, or Chung Yu, I guess it yeah. is. Um, I loved it when I came to the end of your book. It's, um, and I don't know if it's more Buddhist or, or <laughs> karma or whatever, but it's, um, it reminds us that you have to keep your optimism even when the world seems falling down around you. Um, so thank you for that. That was very interesting. Okay. Since you picked one sector of the several things that you focus on the book to talk about. 
I'll ask a few questions, not about the technology sure. things you cover, because people in the audience might want to do that. Um, except there is one technology question that I do want to ask. And I asked actually a couple people on the staff if they had some questions they wanted to ask. And, and this one is from our new Schwarzman fellow, uh, Clorinda Blaise. Um, I, I sort of rewrote it to quote some of the things you said. Um, but basically in the book, you talk about how, and other people have certainly talked about this too, how China has um, sort of defied the West prediction that, and I'm quoting you here, China's internet controls were destined to suck the life out of its tech ecosystem and stunt its economy more broadly. And then you later on quote Vice President Biden as saying to the Chinese, to um, Chinese students at the American Embassy in 2012, um, that innovation can only occur when you breathe free or where you breathe free. Mm -hmm. So clearly, not everyone in China is breathing free, both because of <laughs> carbon and other reasons, um, yet they're doing enormously well and they seem to be innovating very happily, thank you very much. So what's up with that? What's up with that, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, yeah. what's up with that? I love all of your, in, throughout the book, um, Matt has these little introductory phrases for many of his chapters and at least half of them are very clever puns, which I love. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, my favorite <laughs> part too. Um, yeah, I think that this is, this is what has really caught a lot of people in the U.S. and elsewhere off guard in the last few years. And I think it's something that maybe it's, uh, we'll specifically talk about the technology sector, but I think the same lessons apply in many ways to the China-Hollywood relationship and the relationship between cultivating a cultural industry on its own. And so, yeah, the, the, the U.S. setup, we tend to think of these things as whether or not you can develop a, an innovative economy or an innovative tech sector, we tend to put a lot of importance on the high-level, um, somewhat abstract value question. Do you have freedom of thought? Do you have freedom of expression? Can you access the whole internet? And we tend to think of innovation or in film creativity as kind of all being in some way derivative of or reliant on that top-level thing. China has clearly never taken that position. They do not think that this is something that is fundamentally hinges on a value question that is kind of removed from daily life. The, the approach that China has taken is, it looks a lot more like traditional industrial policy. I, I see them as kind of having a recipe for creating, say, an innovative industry or creative industry, which is you get yourself a large, semi-protected market, large so that it has an incentive for foreign companies to come in, you can act as the gatekeeper, and semi-protected so that you don't have those foreign companies, those foreign sort of juggernauts just wiping out local competition. So a large protected market. Um, then this is the key step that we don't think about as much in the U.S. is the uh, having a critical mass of just tangible physical resources. China is very good at throwing resources at a problem. And while we might say, well, you know, you can have as many tech incubators as you want, but if you don't have a free internet, it's all going to come to naught. Whereas China said, no, we're just gonna, we're gonna build a lot of technology spaces. We're going to train a lot of PhDs by having a dramatic expansion in our university system. We're going to kind of flood it with capital in different ways. And we're hoping that technology innovation will kind of just emerge from that stew in some ways. And 
I guess the last ingredient in this kind of three-part thing, large semi-protected market, a critical mass of like tangible physical resources, and connections to leading international sources of this good that you're after. So in this case, innovation, Silicon Valley, you need to maintain some relationship with them. You need to uh, entice Google or Microsoft to set up labs in China. You need to be able to entice people like Drifay to come back from the US and bring what they know. And all that while not fully letting those companies in so they can just kind of wipe out the local competition in the early stages. And when they bring all these three things together, we, I say we, a lot of people in the US, Joe Biden said, you know, fundamentally it's all for naught. It can't work without getting that value question right, that freedom question right. And China has just consistently said, that's not the, that's not the source of innovation. You need this stuff. You need a market, you need the resources, and you need some international connections. And thus far, they have dramatically outperformed expectations in that area. There are always still open questions. You know, can Chinese companies go truly global? We've just seen kind of the first one doing that in the form of TikTok, the new social media app for young, young folks. Um, and in film, same thing. You know, they've managed to defy expectations that their f local film industry couldn't thrive if there wasn't freedom of speech or if they didn't allow in more Hollywood films. But same thing, they threw together a bunch of physical movie sets, a bunch of money, created a large semi-protected market, had ties with Hollywood, and they've managed to create a booming domestic industry. Still unclear if those movies can go truly global, right. but outperforming expectations. And Hollywood has now surpassed us in terms, I mean, I'm sorry, China has now surpassed Hollywood in terms of box office. Box office. Yeah, not quite. There's, it's uh, this perpetual like uh, prediction game of when that, when those lines will cross. But uh, that big thing is whether they are going to be able to, it's the whole soft power issue. Right. Are they going to be able to get a film that is as popular? And that, there's one recently. Yeah. So, I mean, one, I just watched this the other week, um, The Wandering Earth, based on a Liu Cixin, he's the three-body problem author guy. Um, I guess just in the time that I followed this and watched it, you saw Chinese blockbusters undergo this kind of same transition from in 2010, they're just like really weird and wonky and to me like borderline unwatchable. And then you just watch, they just get a little bit more polished. And no, they don't touch on more political issues, but they just, the production values go up a little bit. The special effects get better. The people who are writing and producing them might have spent time in Hollywood studios and kind of picked up some of that, whatever that thing is that Hollywood has. And in the last two, three years, yeah, we've seen a kind of a run of Chinese movies that finally, in many ways, look like American blockbusters. And while they haven't really broken out outside of China, I think the idea that they just can't is uh, one that's, it's, it's not wise to no. hold that one anymore. Because it certainly hasn't proved true in all the other aspects where we've no. said they can't. The Communist Party can't survive, Tiananmen, whatever it can. Um, you mentioned students before, and you open your book, the first chapter is about students, and there are a gazillion different aspects of the student situation we could, could talk about. I'm always struck by, because I lived through the first group of Chinese students who came to this country in 1979, um, they were a very different crop than the students today. You know, yeah. Very focused, they sort of trod a path between, a triangle path between their dormitory, the classroom, the library. And in fact, the National Committee put together a program so that we could break them out of that <laughs> and sort That's of fair. introduce them to American culture and society. Um, 
after, but so that program ran from 1979 to about 2001, and by 2001, it was very clear the Chinese students didn't need the National Committee anymore because they were visiting Washington and Boston and Williamsburg and all these places on their own, and they had the money to do so and the cars to take right. them there, and sort of the free time because they didn't seem quite as young-gung as their predecessors who really spent all of their time studying. So um, maybe in the Q&A, we'll get into more aspects of the, the student thing. But I did want to ask you about one thing, which, again, our, our new intern, Zheng He, who I, is somewhere so, in the audience, uh -huh. um, he, his question was, you, you opened the book by talking about Tim Lin, the mm. founder of College Daily, yeah. right? Uh, for those of you who don't know, College Daily is a very important, do you call it, is it an app? Is it a, like a WeChat kind of? It's an app of, and a WeChat platform. A WeChat platform kind of thing that all, I shouldn't say all because I'm sure there's some who aren't, but the majority or a lot of Chinese students in this country, and I assume worldwide, depend on for their daily news, how they should think, what they should do, and... Um, that can be problematic yeah. because at one point you have Lynn, Tim Lynn, the founder of it, and there was also a recent, uh, recent yeah. New York article on him and on yeah. the company itself. Uh, and the article was a lot harsher than you are about yeah. uh, College Daily. But it talks about how they're just providing the students with what the students want to read and what they want to hear. So Zhang He's question is, does, does that worry Americans? Are hmm. we concerned that the Chinese, this current crop of Chinese student, not all of them, but a good number of them seem to come here with their mind set? You know, there's always, as you said, there's yeah. the idea if you just show people the light, if you just bring them to the United States, they'll understand the freedom, the yeah. tremendous opportunities. Yeah, yeah. But that's not happening. It may have happened in the first group. Maybe it's because the first group of students, there were very few of them on campus. They mm -hmm. had no choice but to integrate and to room with non-Chinese and to eat at non-Chinese restaurants. Yeah. That's not the case anymore. You can be a Chinese student and come to the United States and live totally in a Chinese bubble. Yeah. Um, and that bubble, I think Zhang is concerned, it reinforces itself because mm -hmm. they come with patriotic ideas and they only read what yeah. they read in this. So do you think there's a way of breaking out of this? Do, yeah. Perhaps as Chinese students, uh, the, the numbers are decreasing in mm. the number of Chinese students who are now coming to the United States. A combination, I think, of um, you know the gov some of the terrible things that are going on here and some of the concerns about parents in terms of safety mm. and other things. Maybe as those numbers decrease, we'll get, I, I don't think we're ever going to reach the point where we were in the 1980s, yeah. but do you see that as an opportunity to sort of maybe have a more open outlook on the part of some of the students? Yeah, lots in there. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, because you, you, you framed it up right uh, in, I think, the fundamental transition and what maybe leads to this current moment is with the number of students and where they kind of enter the U.S. at. So like the And where they often stay yeah, at. Yeah, and where they stay at. So the early cohorts, whether it was that first group in 1979 or through the 80s and the 90s, um, they were coming here for graduate school. 
they were usually kind of like top, top tier students at the best colleges in China. And their goal was to come here, get an engineering or maybe a natural science PhD, mm -hmm. and then probably settle down in the US. Because that time, the gap between the countries was so large that you know being a middle class person in Kansas was way better than being even like an upper class person in Beijing in just quality of life. And you see as the countries have become have come closer to um, parity. That's the word I was looking for. I said that. That's a good word. Um, have they come closer to parity or there have been new opportunities in China? Back, you know, maybe in the 90s, if you learned cutting edge US technical skills and you went back to China with those, there might not be anything to do with them. It was fundamentally it's a manufacturing economy. Um, so as the national level kind of balance is moving closer, it's changing the makeup of these students. A lot of times now uh, they are undergrads, they come from a wealthy family background, not necessarily, um, and this is not universal. There's diversity within all of these groups. But the general trend is uh, they don't necessarily have to be the educational elite. Their parents are maybe able to pay for them to go to undergrad here. And after they graduate, they're not necessarily 100% committed to staying here because mm -hmm. suddenly it's not so clear that the li that life would be better hanging on in the US than going back to China. There might be more opportunities for them back there. And so this this kind of like slow rebalancing of the population of students undergirds a lot of these changes. And I think uh, what is it Jungha? Mm -hmm. Jungha like like the explorer? Jungha? <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> um, yes, get, get like to it that. later. Um, the 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 what he's alluding to is this kind of the information bubble, or like maybe the social bubble that emerges with that. Basically, once you have a critical mass, you have a larger number, and they are more maybe confident in themselves, and there's a, an entire market of goods that are created just for them. It's possible to live within that bubble. So, College Daily, very successful media company that couldn't really have existed in the 90s or early 2000s. There just there wasn't a critical mass. Those students didn't have enough purchasing purchasing power. Now there are, and so you you can be a Chinese person who comes to say uh, University of uh, Santa Cruz or Davis, and you can be around you have just Chinese friends. You can kind of get through the day probably more or less just speaking Chinese, maybe just taking in some English in your classes. And when you go home at night for your information sources, you can go through and just read an outlet like College Daily that's catering to you. And, and you know, this sounds sometimes sounds like a little um, nefarious or something like this is exactly what most Americans do in China. <laughs> you know, they go over there, and they're like, the, you know, maybe they learn Chinese, but at the end of the day, they're like, oh, I'm exhausted. I just want to like watch right. Netflix. <laughs> so it's totally normal. This is like goes in both directions. Absolutely. But it's maybe more pronounced here because there's such a large number of students and because in many ways, the, that population has kind of become like a political football between the two countries. Specifically with College Daily, a very interesting company. It was founded, I think, in 2012. And I, I followed them very closely, 2014 to about 2016, 17. They're, they started off as basically this um, sort of a, a series of like how-to guides for, for Chinese students in America. How do you get an H-1B article? Write an article about, uh, how do you get an H-1B visa, excuse me? How, you know, an article about that. What is the Super Bowl? Um, you know, what is Tinder? How do you use it? All this stuff, you know, very uh, in the weeds, uh, daily life stuff. But the platform itself has also undergone a transition, specifically, I think, after the 2016 election. Um, it's become much more nationalistic in tone, much more kind of sensational in tone. And, and in a lot of ways, that tracks a little bit with the views of people in China and maybe some of the Chinese students here as well. Like, if you arrived in the US, 
in the fall of 2016, like your freshman year, and all that you've seen of American politics is the last two, three years, you might come away with a different sense of you know, which system you, know, you feel more comfortable in, or safety, all, all these issues. And College Daily has very much tracked that transition and become much more of like a tabloid-esque kind of sensationalized platform. And yeah, again, it has perfect like mirrors in both countries. We have outlets that do the same thing for China. Um, but it, it is concerning. I don't know, you know, the question is decreasing the numbers of Chinese students gonna like lead back to a better place? I don't know. I think if I have more hope in one trend, it would be Chinese students coming to the US earlier. So it's almost like the population keeps getting younger. It used to just be PhD students. Then around 2010, it kind of became undergrads. And now there's a lot more high school and even middle school students. Some of my friends and colleagues at Macropolo, they came here in high school, you know, so they speak English at fundamentally like a native level. They can be really fluid between the two places without feeling so caught off, you know, feeling so um, maybe put out by American culture in some ways. And so if I, you know, I keep like placing my hopes on like younger and younger people, like, you know, those 12 year old Chinese kids who come here <laughs> and just play AYSO soccer and it'll be great. And ultimate um, Frisbee. Ultimate Frisbee. But uh, I don't know. It, 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 is, it is sad to see it become a more insular community in some ways. It's also very normal. That's what Americans do. And I just hope that um, going forward, there, there can be some things that start to break down that insularity. Okay, well, unfortunately, I have not left enough time for Q&A for others. So if you have questions, please raise your hand, stand up, wait, do we have a microphone? No. Just tell us who you are and ask your question. No questions? Okay, in the back. Can you stand up? Stand up. Oh, Maddie, stand up. Hi. <laughs> Hi, I'm Maddie, I work here at the National Committee. Um, my question is about in following people like Jufei, um, if you saw, so, Clearly, this is an example of someone who benefited from the firewall in some ways and from the kind of the separateness of the two systems. So how does somebody, could then, as you mentioned, all the cross-pollination involved, so how does somebody like that view kind of the, A, won the firewall um, because it allowed him to develop his own innovation, so probably good, but also has benefited from the free open system, presumably in the U.S. for education. Um, so how did you view Sure. Thanks for the question. Yeah, um, you know, in some ways, asking someone like Jerfay, what does he think, is like he has <laughs> such a strong interest, like personal financial interest. He's benefited so greatly personally from the firewall that I doubt he'd like want to tear it down if he could. Um, there are a large number, like kind of my peers over there, my friends who are educated, maybe they spent time in the U.S., who for a long time there was, a, there was a, you know, an acceptance of the restrictions because they were easy enough to get around. All you had to do was download a VPN, you could get around the firewall and access what you wanted. Whereas in the last two, three years, what in, in my mind is, I think the Chinese government has overlearned the lessons of this period of time in the sense that thinking, well, maybe we don't need anything to do with Silicon Valley, or maybe we don't need, maybe we crack down on VPNs, maybe people don't need to access Google at all. Um, and I think that that is upsetting a, a tricky balance. I thought from a purely kind of strategic point of view, the Chinese government's uh, use of the firewall and VPNs like five years ago is very, very smart. 90% of the people, like the mass of people that you care about what they think about, um, 
they're just not going to go through like the the VPN. The firewall is just kind of like a nudge. If you just make it a little bit hard to access the global internet, they're just not going to do it. They don't speak English anyway, maybe, and they you know they're happy with their own sites. But people who really needed it, people who are like academics or uh, people like Jeffay or Timlin or whoever, who for some reason really needed access to um, overseas sites, could very easily get a VPN and get around it. Whereas in the last two years, a lot of my friends, in, I mean, I, I was at Tim Lin's company when they had really had, they had their VPN finally like knocked down fully and I didn't know how they were going to get another system around it. Maybe they have. Same thing with Jerfay's company. Like these are very smart technical people who have spent times in both places and even they are having a hard time getting around the firewall. And I think that uh, the Chinese government from their own perspective of self-interest might be overlearning that lesson that there was a benefit to having this wall, but having it be porous for this kind of elite class of people that you wanted to access that. So I think that's one uh, one dimension of that where I think the government and the people are, are further out of line than they were even just a few years ago. Um, with the, I mean, everything that's going on in the relationship right now is another thing, the, the, the phrase at the end, the Sai Wang Shirma Yan Fu, it's uh, one of the things that made me think of that was a Chinese uh, Chinese technologist, he, he's a founder of an AI chip startup. And he very much had the position, I was like, you know, things are really like tense right now. Like the, he was gonna open a lab in Silicon Valley, he couldn't do it anymore. And I asked him, what do you think? He's like, maybe this is a good thing in the long run. Maybe Chinese technology needed like, you know, a, a whap over the head to force it to really develop these technologies indigenously on its own. And so that, I mean, this he told me this like, uh, I don't know, a year ago, nine months ago. And so much has changed in the last year. I don't know if that position holds, but I got that on, in conversations in both places with Chinese folks that like maybe forcing maybe forcing Chinese uh, technology to not be so dependent on foreign IP is a good thing. Maybe it's going to nudge them in a more productive direction, which would, from a U.S. perspective, would fundamentally be backfiring. Right, and that's some of what our administration and government doesn't seem to understand. Um, other questions? Okay. Adele? Adele, tell us who you are. I'm Maria de Camara and I'm a fellow in Harvard Asia Center. And I would like to ask what do you think of the current characterization of China US tech relations as a Cold War? Yeah, I think, I think uh, it's a characterization that both like makes a lot of intuitive sense. Um, there are many aspects of the current relationship that look like aspects of the Cold War have parallels to it. Um, you know, the countries, the ecosystems are increasingly divided. There's kind of competition in third-party countries with Amazon and uh, Alibaba or whoever competing over India, or Uber and Didi competing in Mexico or Brazil. That kind of looks like the way that the Cold War was waged in some ways. So it, there's, I understand why the characterization has like picked up um, momentum, calling it a tech Cold War. I do think that it both is in some ways factually incorrect and in other ways dangerous and like I just want to push back against using it. Factually incorrect partly because of the, the still ongoing density of these relations. Like I don't think the US technology sector in the 50s or 60s was like fueled in large part by Russian Soviet engineers. Um, and there are more ongoing entanglements. Google still operates an AI research lab in Beijing. Uh, Baidu still operates a lab in Silicon Valley. There's, for the moment. For the moment. There, despite all the attempts to disentangle this, it's kind of so 
it's so rich and so deeply interwoven that I don't think we're ever going to get to that state of just like, you know, using Soviet, like you could, you could barely move between the countries. You, it, it was so much more isolated in that way. So that's kind of why I think it factually misses something. Um, and dangerous because, yeah, I think, that, I think that if we start, that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And kind of touching on what I was discussing at the end in terms of technology governance and how, how are we going to govern stuff like AI going forward or quantum computing or whatever it is. Um, if we treat it the same way we treated uh, you know, nuclear power and nuclear weapons, I think that's a very dangerous precedent to set and a very dangerous kind of road to go down. They're not nuclear weapons, they're different in many ways, but I think that for the sake of kind of uh, U.S. and China security, safety, the people in the countries, I, I try to push back against that characterization because I, I don't want to become self-fulfilling in that way. There was someone behind. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'm along those same lines. My name is Kevin Lieber. I lived in Silicon Valley for many years. This is even outside, I know. But, um, you know, you said one of the costs of decoupling was, uh, you know, ethically it's going to be harder to govern sort of right. questions that come up. but. I'm just not sure if going to like a laissez-faire open market would achieve yeah. that either. I don't know yeah. why you thought that. You know, yeah. Yeah. So I think that we basically uh, part of the argument I'm making the piece is like looking for. I think of it as like smart decoupling um, in the way of cutting off or shutting down the linkage linkages where it's really about uh, technology transfer in some way or taking advantage of while maintaining some space for communication and shared governance. So specifically, like in AI is what I focus on like all the time now. And in, in this realm, there's a field called uh, technical AI safety. How do we make sure the AI systems are uh, controllable and they do exactly what we want them to and we understand what they're doing. And that's an area, it's like an emerging research field where currently Chinese, top Chinese and US researchers are able to like engage on these questions at conferences, at uh, labs like in Beijing or in Silicon Valley and one of my greater fears in that area is cutting off that connection at the same time that we're cutting off all these other things I think you know money is not going to go back to flowing freely between them and it's 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 a good thing that the US government in some sense woke up to the fact that these are like technology is very much deeply integrated with national security and we can't just kind of have this totally laissez-faire system the question is, as we make this separation, maintaining some kind of a space for dialogue on the areas where it really would help U.S. national security to be engaged. Okay, one last question, because I know we've gone over, but go introduce I'm yourself, person, please. Uh, from uh, Booster and Serengeti Bridges, company. Uh, do you work with Emily uh, Saxenian? Emily Saxenian, she's she wrote a lot of research on Oh, the his and yeah, yeah, yeah. I know of her and I know her son, but I have not worked with her. The other question is, when you talk about national security, I want to bring from the Chinese border belt and shit, mm. and make made uh, in China 2025. Right. So, how would you describe that, and how would you impact American fear of Chinese hegemony? Yeah. I mean, I know Joe Bolton is gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Belt and Road and Made in China 2025. So I see those as relatively different things with Belt and Road fundamentally being a, uh, a, a foreign pol policy overarching scheme. And it's not something that I dive into a ton. 
uh, for people who don't know, it's like a broader Chinese foreign policy initiative to integrate in different ways with countries in Central Asia, Southeast Asia, even all the way to India, Africa, through economic linkages, building railroads, uh, opening ports. And, you know, you hear very, very different things about this from different sides. Some people say, look, it's kind of just, you know, when you're a superpower, you start having these, like, global plans. We had the Marshall Plan, uh, right? I was about to call it the Truman Plan. No, Marshall, Marshall Plan. Um, and in some ways, I think that's true. We have a hard time, in the U.S., we have a hard time putting ourselves in the shoes of another country and seeing just how much our initiatives can also look very nefarious if we just kind of take away all context or we assume the worst in motivations. But there's also, I've talked to people, bankers from Pakistan who are like, fundamentally, they're, 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 they're outsmarting our government and they're, they're leeching off resources. So I don't have a super strong position on Belt and Road stuff. Um, Made in China 2025, I've looked more at. So Made in China 2025, that's the uh, major Chinese industrial policy that seeks to uh, foster indigenous innovation within China. With the goal, basically, in 2015, they identified 10 future-looking industries and said we want to uh, have more of the IP in these be from China. We want to foster them domestically and not just, like, buy foreign technology for it. In some ways... You know, that's a completely understandable policy. Most countries have some goal along those lines. They usually just don't make it as explicit and say, like, this is our plan and this is how we're going to do it, which the Chinese government loves to do. Um, I think that the, the overarching trend towards uh, wanting to bring that technology within China is that's going to continue no matter what. The Chinese government has basically stopped talking about this entirely. My, a colleague of mine at Macropolo just did a study of how many times is Made in China 2025 mentioned in Chinese media and in U.S. media. Basically, hugely, densely mentioned every day, many times in Chinese media. And then as soon as it becomes an issue in the trade war, all Chinese media on it stops and all U.S. media on it picks up. <laughs> so they've kind of, like, canceled it um, on paper. But if anything, the events of the last two years or year plus have more and more reinforced for them that how vulnerable they are if they don't do this. When we threaten to cut off all sales, specifically semiconductors, this is what I spend more time on, when we threaten to cut off all sales of semiconductors to Huawei and ZTE, it became immediately clear that these companies might just crumble without U.S. technology. And I thought, this is one area where I thought, you know, I think there are many aspects to the trade war that have, have make some sense or maybe strategically disagree, but they, they have some root in them. The way we did this was, I thought, the, the very, not, very not smart, yeah. <laughs> um, by basically warning them. So we came out and said, we're going to ban all semiconductor sales to Huawei and ZTE. And then they realized, wow, this is a huge problem. We need to like indigenize all this and get started on it right now. And then we said, OK, just kidding. We're not going to do it. <laughs> And so we kind of like Too show late. them, it's like you show your, your Trump card. card in some way. And then you're like, no, okay, you guys take some time, build it up yourselves, make yourself not quite as vulnerable, and then we might play it later. It's just like strategically, not, not the way to do it. Um, you know, if, if you want to reveal it, actually like do damage, but don't just tell them you're going to do damage. Um, so. Yeah, in some ways, like, our demand right now is for them to, to retract Made in China 2025 and be more open. But the way that we're going about it is just reinforcing their feeling of vulnerability that they need this more than ever. And I don't, I think, even if we come to some short-term trade agreement, medium-term trade agreement, that, the, the, 
the incentives there are not changing. They, they have doubled down those incentives for the time being. And so I think that's, that train is not stopping. On that pleasant, optimistic <laughs> note, I, I was going to ask you whether you, you, your website says mm. called um, The Optimist Guide to China. Yeah. So I was going to ask you if you're an optimist or pessimist, but we really don't have time. I'm, so. now, I'm now a detached Buddhist. <laughs> Neither <position>. one. <laughs> That's very wise. Um, please join me in thanking Matt for a wonderful program.